The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga, with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. From Spirituality and Health magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Matthew Ricard, a molecular biologist, Buddhist monk, photographer, author, humanitarian, and the French translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. We last spoke with him in July of 2015 when we focused on his book, Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World. We're delighted to have him back on Essential Conversations to discuss his newest book, A Plea for the Animals the moral, philosophical, and evolutionary imperative to treat all beings with compassion. An excerpt from the book appears in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Matthew Ricard, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much. Yes, glad we can connect again. Yeah, me too, me too. It was a delight talking to you before, and I'm looking forward to this albeit too short conversation right now. In in the introduction to A Plea for the Animals, you write this, that this book is a logical and necessary follow-up to your previous book on altruism. I get the logic connection, but I'm I'm curious about the notion that it's a necessary follow-up. What what do you see as as, uh, making this book necessary after the last one? Well, you see, if we speak of a good heart uh, or altruism, compassion, benevolence, kindness, name it, you know, it is more of an attitude towards others, towards sentient beings, to anyone who can make the difference between happiness and suffering, rather than a commodity that you have in a limited uh, amount and then you have to be very careful to whom you give it or not. So in that sense, since it is a qualitative attitude, like is the sun shining just on a few spots on earth or is it shining on the whole earth? So in the sense, I think compassion should know no barriers. And one of the reasons is not just it's better if it doesn't. I would even argue, especially for those people who say, 
that by turning your attention to other species, you may risk loving or taking care less of human beings. I would say that if you actually fragment and bias and narrow down your compassion, you would also have a lesser quality of compassion to your fellow human beings. So that's one of the arguments why it is necessary to have a full bloom, full-fledged compassion. It is necessary to include uh, you know, 8 other million species who are our co-citizens on this earth, are sentient beings, they don't want to suffer. So if we exclude them, there is a gap. There's a kind of ethical incoherence in our very advanced civilization. You know, you mentioned a couple of times just now the notion of a sentient being. And I remember, I don't know if this is true in the Tibetan tradition, but certainly uh, every day in the uh, Zen tradition, we would chant the Bodhisattva vows. And the first one was, sentient beings are innumerable. I vow to save them all. In the yes. book, in the book, you make a distinction between this notion of sentience, which is common to Eastern religions. You mentioned Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism, and the notion of soul that you think is, and I would agree, this is the, is the focus of Western religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. First of all, let's just be clear on the difference. How do you understand uh, the difference between soul and sentience? And then we can get into why the difference leads to different approaches to treating animals. Well, you know, I'm not a theologian, especially I don't, I'm not, I've not studied well enough you know, the, religion, the religion of the book. Uh, well, I think the notion of sentience is not a, a really philosophical one. You no, know, like the soul could be, or like the Atman in Hindu religion, where you consider as an individual entity. Uh, that travels along. Uh, in Buddhism and Jainism, I guess, we have more uh, a way of seeing there's a continuum of consciousness without, say it's like a, a river without a boat traveling on it. So the continuity of consciousness makes a stream. Now, sentience is a very basic uh, awareness of something that is able to know, even in a very rudimentary form. It doesn't need to have a self-reflective consciousness or intellect, the notion of I and so forth. The basic uh, knowledge that in reaction to the outer world makes you somehow go towards what will favor your well-being and survival and move away or try to avoid what threatens your physical and mental integrity for those who have you know, more advanced intellect and have emotions and so forth. So in that sense, sentience could be very simple. It doesn't require some intellectual faculties. Which makes concern for animals far, or, or concern, when we have a concern for sentient beings, it broadens it to almost everything that exists. Well, yes, it, it is a bit difficult to draw the exact border when you start, you know, the, the border areas are always difficult, no matter what, in whichever field you go. Uh, so where to draw the line? You know, scientists will tell you more. If you have a nervous system, you start making a difference between what we will later, in a more sophisticated way, call pleasure and pain or happiness and suffering. But still, you know, there's a continuum. It's a matter of degree. 
But fundamentally, when there is a kind of a difference with plants, which only react mechanically to outer stimuli, it don't seems to be able to delay a decision or to know all kinds of things that comes with sentience. Anyway, this is a difficult concept, but I think the real debate, uh, let's make it very simple. Any uh, being uh, that experience suffering even in a very rudimentary form somehow would rather not suffer. And that, in a way, at aspiration, which is very, very basic, we should have some concern and consideration for it. So that's the very simplest uh, baseline. And, and a very clear one, I think. And you, you juxtapose that in the book with, and I'm just going to give one example from, uh, uh, well, I can give a couple of examples actually here. One, one from St. Thomas Aquinas, who says that uh, the love of one's neighbor does not include animals. And then centuries later, Descartes, and I'm not going to read the entire quote you have in the book, but he says, uh, animals are no more than simple machines, automata. They feel neither pleasure nor pain nor anything else at all. And that kind of attitude, this notion that animals, when, when sentience is the principle, then we, we are on an equal footing with animals. I mean, there may be different, there may be variations in the, in the amount of self-consciousness and self-awareness, but sentience is shared by all. Whereas in the West, it seems like humans simply discounted the sanctions of animals, or, or even if they did think they were sanctioned, they discounted the value of that sanctions. So do you see it, this, this plea for the animals, a more difficult, do you see the case for this uh, animal care yeah, yes, more difficult in the West than you do in the East? Oh, definitely, yes. And also, you know, the, the Descartes position, for instance, has made so that until two years ago in France, you know, domestic animals were considered as in the same category of furnitures, uh, object that you own. It's actually exactly the word furniture that was used. So a, a ship or a dog will be a walking table. Of course, it flies to common sense. <laughs> so, so I think the reason for that is quite simple. You know, when we were hunter-gatherers, animals were considered as different, not necessarily inferior, because you know, when you have to deal, especially with prey animals, you better run for your life. And they knew their habits, their customs. There was the spirit of the jaguar, the spirit of the elk. But then when we started to become sedentary and raise livestock with agriculture, then of course we have to become familiar with those animals. They become almost part of the family, but at the end we have to kill them. So it's a very you know, uneasy uh, situation. You, we feel you are, we are a good person, and yet you have to kill some an animal that you have been you know, together for a long time. So you have to find kinds of justification. They don't have any soul. They don't feel anything. They're just like machines. Pain doesn't mean anything, etc., etc. So I think it's a way, there's a cognitive dissonance there. But now, you know, science tells us that more and more uh, you know, simple animals do have nervous termination to feel pain. For a long time, they thought that fish won't feel pain. Now we know they feel pain. We know that lobsters feel pain. We know that shrimps feel pain. So now, you know, the, the boundary is becoming thinner and thinner. And yet our ethics has not included that. And just to give you a staggering example, you know, we kill basically every hour 
120 million animals every hour for our use. And that's in a week, more than any uh, casualty in, in war for whole history of human beings. Okay, of course, we are not saying that they are the same, but you know, it goes every week practically unnoticed. So when you say that, um, uh, that in the East we would put on the same footing human beings and animals, certainly not if we had to choose between saving the life of a human beings and a dog or whatever, because that argument has been used, haha, you know, those animal rights protectors, they think that the life of a rat is just the same value as human being. Of course, nobody ever said that. But the fact that still, you know, it's not the same value as human beings, okay, fine, of course, obviously, but that doesn't mean they have a zero value. So basically, we are everything, they are nothing. That means, rightly so, the value of human beings, of human life, is no more negotiable. We, we don't have slaves anymore that we sell at certain price. So it's infinite, which is, has to be like that. But when it comes to other species, it is zero unless it has a commercial or other kind of, of, of value. Right, exactly. I mean, we actually do continue to have slavery. Uh, we do put, yeah, put we a price do, on people, course, so we still do that. At least it's illegal. <laughs> right, right. At least, at least it's that. Uh, uh, not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, um, Pope Francis got into a little bit of trouble when he was talking to this little boy whose dog had died, and the boy was very upset. And and the Pope tried to comfort him by saying, well, don't worry, you'll meet your dog again in heaven. And that sent shockwaves out through <laughs> the Catholic theological world because it implied that the dog had soul. And I think the soul issue, you know, whether, whether or not you consider yourself a theologian, I think the soul issue in the West is really important because if, if we imagine animals have souls, then they have certain rights. And we don't like in the West to think of of animals having rights. We're having trouble even imagining that humans have rights. So, <laughs> yes. you know, that, 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 I think the difference, while I understand that, that uh, sanctions is not meant to equate humans and rats, uh, still, I think the notion of sanctions as the bottom line is much more powerful than one that is not testable, like whether animals have souls or not. But I, I want to I ask you something, and this is... If I may say about yeah, Pope please. Francis, I mm. mean, the, his encyclica, is, a, is really remarkable about animals. He said that the wholesale industrialized slaughter that's taking place is a degrading, basically, human dignity, which is probably one of the strongest statements made by a you know, very high sort of, uh, so, you know, like a pope or anyone like mm. that. That's pretty clear. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Very, yeah, Sorry. very, very clear, very clear. You know, I, I wanted to ask you something more, oh, I don't know if it's personal, and I don't, I don't mean it personal to you, but this, this is something that happened to me just in the last two months. I was spending time at a Tibetan Buddhist community in uh, California called Ratna Ling, and I was in the library browsing through some books, and I came across this 
teaching called, well, in English, I can't even pronounce it in Tibetan, but in English, they translate it as ransom and release. Uh, and you mention it very, very briefly in the book, but the idea, if I understand it right, and I just like to get your take on this, and, and I ended up buying the liturgy for it, but uh, the English translation of the liturgy for it from the Tibetan. And it seems like there's a practice of uh, bringing animals into, or, or allowing animals to take refuge in the three jewels of Buddhism, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the, the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. So, And then releasing them so that they can't be killed, they can't be abused, they can't be mistreated in any way. And, and then expecting that in a future incarnation, they will come back perhaps as humans. Does this have any influence on, on your practice or was this any, did this have any uh, influence on the book? Yes. No, <laughs> no, I've been, <laughs> no, once a French critics, we didn't read the book, wrote, oh, this is an apology of Buddhism and stuff like that. Uh, actually, we do a lot of animal, free, freeing animals. A uh, little bit more simple than what you mentioned. Of course, animals can't take refuge. They don't, they can't speak. They cannot have this notion. So basically what happens is to save them from death. Uh, and uh, actually, if you see the dedication of this book, is to one of my teacher, Tibetan Lama, who's now has freed, I put one million, but now is about 30 million since then. Uh, like fishes and and, and all kinds of animals that are put back in the sea and so forth. So the SD is basically to give them a new lease of life instead of ending up in our stomachs. Now, while they do so, they do recite some prayers, the names of the Buddhas and so forth, wishing that in a future life, you know, they may have, have a, more, a life that gives them more opportunity to think about the spiritual path, disentangle themselves from the you know, cause of suffering and ignorance, which is, of course, something that human beings have a special capacity for it that doesn't give them a superiority, that gives them the right to oppress other species. But clearly, in terms of spiritual liberation, we have a, a capacity to achieve that that is far greater than other animals. That's why we make that wish. But the, really, the, the main point there is to save lives. Right. So, so you can't, because the animal can't speak, the, the animal isn't, sanctioned enough to actually oh, no, uh, take refuge, take <laughs> right? They take refuge. So this was, no, maybe it's the translation that I have here, but that, that was the I impression that I got. Maybe it was done vicariously in the, in, in the, in the way this was translated. So what can we do? Uh, I mean, the book is, is very detailed and there's lots of, of things that people can, can explore in the book. But if, you know, if, if the listener is just hearing you about this book for the first time, I mean, should, should we become vegetarians? Is that the first step? Well, you know, basically what I'm trying to lay out through this book is all uh, issues from science, from every, every possible field, and let people look, this is happening. Uh, you know, in France, there was a little cat that was thrown in the air, and everybody, the whole media was about that. People, that guy filmed himself, he was arrested. But the same, of course, it's nice to take cause of little cat or a pig that escaped from the slaughterhouse, it shows that we have we care. But the same day in France, there were 400,000 animals in terrible condition in slaughterhouses. So there is a kind of ignorance of what's taking place. Now, what I'm asking is just see the whole picture, know the situation. You can't say it's behind the walls that you don't see. Okay, it is there every day, all year round. So then 
take a decision. So how to take a decision? Well, the easiest one, it may be difficult to become an animal rights advocate. And by the way, when people in France, because no, this book stirred more opposition than anything I did before. So <laughs> when they say, well, you know, what do you do for humans? There's more urgent problem in Syria and everywhere. I said, look, you know, first of all, my organization, Karuna Session, has helped 400,000 human beings last year in India, Nepal, and Tibet. So we certainly did our share. And in fact, you know, to kill uh, six, uh, 60 billion land animals every year doesn't help Syrians or human rights in China. So stopping to harm doesn't take much time. It doesn't take a lo lot of CO2 emission. It's just a finger snap decision. So one of the easiest way, of course, is not to make one's stomach a graveyard and not to live at the cost of the suffering and the death of others. That doesn't take much effort except a mental decision to have a coherence in one's ethic of benevolence. So that's not a fanatic uh, sort of dogmatic approach, but at least reduce or try to you know, harm as, as less as we can. And of course, I have a friend who, who is always at the edge say, no, I know what you say. It's a bit difficult. So I'm trying to tell myself I eat a little, uh, I eat less animals. But would I say, okay, I cannot stop killing, but I can kill a little bit less, you know? So at the end, you find out that, yes, if you don't want to harm, and it's simple, you just stop. And when you see the reasons why people continue to eat meat, it's not for health, because now it has been shown again and again that uh, regular meat eating is not very good for health. In the WHO, I issue a... A, a overall report was based on 600 studies. It's mostly because they like the taste. So the compassion stops at the edge of your plate. So that's quite simple. So I think the life of a, of a horse, of a cow, of a pig is more valuable than, you know, taste. So that's what uh, I think we, we could, everyone could decide for themselves. Well, I mean, that, that, I think that's very clear, profound, and, and a great way to end. Let, let me just add one thing quickly. I, I am a vegetarian, so I didn't have that wrestling. But Thank after you. reading the book uh, and focusing on sentience, and, and this I think is really interesting, and we can just, I'll just put it out there, but focusing on sentience, I found a new respect for the bugs that are in my house. That, and I, I couldn't just, I just couldn't <laughs> swat them or, or, or kill them. I try to now catch them in a little Kleenex <laughs> or something and take them outside because it's, they're sanctioned. And, and I don't have to worry about, do they have a soul or no soul? Or I'm not eating them. But the mere right. fact that they have enough sanctions to, yeah, to you know, fear or, or, you know, to, to, to feel pain, I, I have an obligation to take better care of them. Great. And if I may say something about one of your colleagues, Rabbi David Rosen, who used to be the great rabbi of Ireland, he's vegetarian, and he says the only real kosher meat is to be vegetarian. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. Absolutely true. So great. thank you very much. We're going to have to end it there. Oh, right. it was it's, lovely to be with it, you again. Thank you very much. It's always a delight to talk with you. Okay. Take care. Au revoir. Au revoir. <laughs> My guest today was Matthew Ricard, whose newest book, A Plea for the Animals, The Moral, Philosophical, and Evolutionary Imperative to Treat All Beings with Compassion, is excerpted in the November-December issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Matthew's work uh, at matthewricard.org. 
And certainly you can read the excerpt at spiritualityhealth.com. Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual international yoga festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log in to spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan-Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan-Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, Don't take your dreams lying down.